It's time to clip your last good piece and dig in because the runout starts now. Andrew, how was your weekend? Well, I did more small talking than I've done all year. I lost my voice and uh, and probably saw my you know yearly allotment of of folks. So I'm back in my hole in my safe place here in Newcastle, <laughs> and um, hopefully I don't have to leave for the rest of 2023. <laughs> Where'd you go? Tell us about your trip. <laughs> I went to Boulder, Colorado, uh-huh. <laughs> and um, for the Real Rock premiere, uh, of which one film is a film that I'm in, yeah, about climbing in Palestine. And so I was part of the event. Uh, I went to two showings on Saturday, and you know went up on the stage and you know said said a few words and just got to see the the world premiere of Real Rock 17. So yeah, it was a cool weekend. It was my uh, parents and sister from New York flew out uh, for the event, and some cousins from California came out. So there's kind of a mini family reunion, and um, yeah, it's pretty special. Yeah, I mean, we kind of teased it on the run out because you went, and then you came back, and you know that normally I think we would have just chatted about the whole thing, but it went under sort of an embargo because of. Um, because of the real rock thing. And so I wanted to kind of well, know because you I know, just yeah. a point on that yeah. um real quick is that it wasn't officially under embargo by any means. Right. But I just um I just had this feeling that this film would get made and then they would realize that they could there's no way that they could put it in their real rock tour. And right. so I didn't wanna I didn't wanna <laughs> plug it before it was actually, you know, in the lineup and and going to all the all the venues. And so um it was more just like a Self preservation instinct. Yeah, it's all. I mean, I meant in, yeah, embargo. I don't think, yeah, it wasn't necessarily official, but we would have talked yeah. about your trip as a trip, you know, as just yeah. like that you'd gone climbing over there because I was curious about it. But um, I wanted to kind of know because I don't exactly know how it went down that it turned in because it, it started out as a personal trip. Yeah. You were going to go there. And the reason it's important that your family showed up to the premiere is because it was about your uh going back to where your um grandfather was from and and uh you know seeing this ancestral home which i think was part of the original trip as well um so tell me about like the two things like how did the trip come about and then how did it turn into a film project because having been on a film project myself uh, uh it it changes your trip so it's not like it's a decision to be made of like am i going here to have this you know, personal trip or am I going here to make a film because it's, it's two vastly different things. Yeah. That's a really good question because that was a big part of the behind the scenes on this film. And you're right. I, I, um, I, you know, I booked my tickets to go just, just alone basically with Tim, um, who is in the film. So Tim and I had just planned to go and go, go to Palestine. And I wanted to see my grandfather's house. That was kind of my only, itinerary item and um once the real rock folks heard that i was going to palestine and they had kind of like tim had been trying to get a real rock film made about palestine for basically from the day he moved there 
Um, we kind of been joking that the last decade of his life has all been like a secret ploy to get himself into the real rock lineup, like (laughs) going to Palestine, starting a climbing program there, building a gym, building a climbing community, bolting all these routes. It was all just to get a real rock film made about himself. Of course, none of that's true, but, um, that was the joke. And, um, but anyway, yeah, I, I was really reticent about, about the idea that this would be part of my trip because it was personally meaningful to me. Um, and Nick Rosen actually mentioned this on stage in Boulder that I wasn't, that basically I didn't really want them to join the trip. I I didn't want to make a film about this and I would, I didn't really, I don't know. I just had reservations about it. And you're exactly right. It's because I've been part of film projects before and I know how much they change the 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 experience the journey right the uh, the, the quietude the quietude um, is, that's a taps uh, <laughs> reference in case anyone doesn't know um and yeah I that's two taps references in this yeah. episode so far yeah already yeah I know taps Cross basically promotion. just sets the the tone for the discourse the and climate the year, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah so I you know I was reticent but then. You know, and I talked to some relatives. I said, you know, we're, I'm, well, one of, one of my concerns is that I was just worried about all the ways in which making a film about Palestine could go wrong. And mm-hmm. so I didn't want I remember to be you part saying of that. that. To me, yeah. It's a tough, it's a really tough issue to, to deal with. And I think it leaves a lot of like traditional journalistic instincts about storytelling, I think kind of break down in, in this particular situation because of how skewed the, the discourse is and we're kind of where our baseline, uh, you know, our baseline is. And, and when we approach this issue and think about it. Yeah. Anyway, so I, I was just kind of reticent about the whole, everything about it kind of made me concerned, but, and I just wanted to have this kind of very, just like a genuine, I, I, I truly didn't know how I was going to feel about Palestine and I didn't want to, I wanted to be as open-minded as possible going there. I didn't want to be, pushed in one direction or another about this like storied place with all these conflicts, you know, so, so many people in my life are, you know, Jewish and have very like fond things to say about Israel and what it means to them. And that was kind of my upbringing was being in those, in that milieu of people. And so I, I just wanted to, just go and see for myself what it was and and have like this kind of genuine experience. But the more I thought about it, I realized that there was this potential opportunity that I couldn't say no to. And if this was, you know, I started talking to some of the Palestinian climbers, I realized that this was going to be a way, you know, basically real rock wanted to use me as a, as a way to get into this story. And it at some point it didn't, it wasn't about me and my little journey, you know, selfish journey to my ancestral backgrounds, uh, homelands or whatever. And, um, and so I, I felt like, okay, this, this is an opportunity for for people who might never get a spotlight or a chance at a spotlight again. And I would be, um, denying them that if I said no. And so I just needed to kind of suck it up and accept that the trip was going to be different for me than it would have been otherwise and just be okay with that. It's hard for me to remove myself from that, be, not be thinking about, especially when you're in it, you know, you, um, who I know, like, well, what, 
you know, how did this get set up? How did this like shot get set up? Like all these sorts of things. But the cool thing was, is that like, I think that, um, I kind of lost that sense of it when I started watching it. And Mm -hmm. when the, the Palestinian climbers took over the story, which happened quickly, you know, again, you were sort of like this vessel to get the story rolling, but, um, but then, yeah, everybody was so charming. Like it's just, they were just a really great group of, of people. And, I've always been kind of remarked on this universality of climbing scenes. And yes, they have these, you know, extremely different issues with climbing over there, but then they're all just like these climbers and, mm-hmm. and you know, the dudes are the climber dudes and the, and the climber chicks are the climber chicks. And right. I thought that was really cool. And, and even, um, is it Tafik? What was, yeah, Tafik. Uh, Tafik. Yeah. It's like, he just is like, he just fell right into this, like, I'm a climber dude. Like yeah. in this yeah, and and you know, so anyway, I, I thought that was cool and and was able to kind of remove myself while I was watching it from this like how did they get this shot? And of course they had to like mic up You, you lost know, yourself and, in the story. Yeah, yeah, which was good. Yeah. So um how was the reception? Reception was amazing. Um I mean, I got like five million comments from people about how much they loved the film and how moved they were by it, and you know, people were crying and stuff like that. I've pretty much cried every single time I've seen the film myself, and I've seen it quite a few times at this point. So, yeah, it's an emotional piece, and I think it was really well done. And I'm I'm pretty proud of the the final product. And um, as as kind of mortifying as it is personally to me to be. <laughs> in this film, I, you know, I'm, I'm a writer, I'm a, I'm an introvert. I'm much, you know, m- more comfortable being behind, you know, the, the page or the, the, you know, some words that I think about carefully. And so, yeah, but again, it was, I've, I've had this mentality the whole time of it's, it's just not about me. This film's not about me at all. And, um, it's about Palestine and about these Palestinian climbers and, and so for all those reasons, I just couldn't be happier to be part of it for that reason alone. I mean, you know, when I found out that it was going to be a film, I think I would have trained more though. <laughs> well, it's kind of funny. <laughs> I know the, there's like the dude, I was like as about as out of shape as I think I've been in a, in the last decade in that film. Um, and part of the reason that I even got to go to Palestine in the first place is because I'd been working so much over the last 10 months that I had extra money basically lying around to indulge myself in this very seemingly self-indulgent trip for a, you know, 40 year old dude with, uh, with two kids who could be, you know, buying gymnastics lessons or whatever for my daughters. So anyway, and it was something I always wanted to do. So I was like, okay, I've got a few extra thousand dollars I can spend on myself. I'm going to go to Palestine. And, Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, the, the train, if I knew it was going to be a real rock film, I might've trained more and worked less. And yeah, you didn't figure that out till, till you almost (laughs) gone, almost were leaving on the jet plane. (laughs) It's it's a, it's, it's kind of a bit in, in the movie. So, um, but yeah, I mean, the other the other question I have about, and this is probably something that Tim, you know, could have vetted ahead of time. But w- was there any risk to these people? I mean, in terms of them, totally. And we're putting still their faces about on that. this on this film. Yeah, I think so, and I think that we're that's still a concern, especially now that it's getting out there. And um, I mean, the access, every single step of this film has been 
a conversation with Palestinian climbers about, you know, trying to like talk through their legitimate concerns. And one of the, um, one of the, you know, kind of the thresholds that we crossed early on before anyone agreed to like do this film is we had some zoom calls with some of the climbers in that film and hearing their stories about what life is like for them and what their concerns were and like tears flowing and like all that kind of stuff. It, it really, I think like Nick Rosen and um, he's he, at Sender films. He was just like, Oh, Whoa, Whoa. Okay. This is like serious. We have to like be very careful with this story. And so the bar, it, the bar was set high, like from the get go that this was something mm-hmm. that really needed a lot of care. And it's already controversial. I mean, I've already gotten like really as much as I've gotten mostly great responses. There's been a, a number of um, negative interactions I've had so far um, with people who feel that it's, uh, you know, one-sided and misrepresents the reality of life in, in Israel. And yeah, I mean, it's a hornet's nest of an, of an issue. And so there's, that's just kind of part of it. So anytime you talk about this, it's going to create some pretty heated responses, but I feel like we tried to tell not the whole story of Israel and Palestine, but the Palestinian story and what life is like for them. And I feel comfortable with saying that that was, that that's really honestly done. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I feel like there wasn't actually a ton of editorializing. It was more, here are these things that happened. Mm-hmm. You know, here's are these facts. Like the fact is, is that your family home was taken, yeah. you know, that that's there, you know, there's no like, well, yeah, but it's like, no, there's, there's, that's what happened, you know? Mm-hmm. And that, you know, these climbers were confronted with, with, you know, guns in their faces that happened, yeah. you know, you guys don't edit editorialize as to why, or, you know, who, why the security issues are there and are there both sides and all that sort of thing. So I don't know. Um, but I understand like, yeah, it was, it was kind of wild to tread in and I don't know, did that keep you up at night with this idea of, of dropping yourself into this, into this world? Well, yeah, just in terms of having this film out there, I think that it, I mean, it's honestly, dude, it's been kind of just like speaking from a personal perspective, Palestine is something that I was always embarrassed to talk about. I was, I often shied away from telling people that that was kind of my background and heritage and my last name was Arabic because I grew up in a context where Palestine was just associated with something negative and terrorism and so forth. And I don't think this film could have been made 20 years ago. And it's been wild for me to see in the last, you know, couple decades, like people walking around the streets and, you know, wearing kafiyas around their necks, you know, just like, I don't know, that just wasn't part of my upbringing in, in the 80s and 90s. And so I don't know what's changed exactly, but I think people are more open to, uh, I don't know, I'm I'm not really sure what it is that that's changed people's you know palette for this, but I just can't imagine real rock making a film about Palestine that was this political, you know, 10 years ago. Um, yeah. What have they done? That's in this vein. The, I mean, uh, the model ever. everyone was kind of thinking about, well, like black ice was, it's not really political, but it deals with racial issues in in this country and which um, are political, which are political and, yeah. you know, but not, not quite on the same way that, mm-hmm 
you know, Palestine and Israel are political. But yeah, so that that model of just like, you know, highlighting a community of people who who's, you know, are marginalized or whatever that word means. That was kind of the model for them, you know, because that was the only other film that they've really done that wasn't just like sick, hard, gnar climbing, you know, like you you set up the, the character, they go do the route, and then, you know, the film ends. Um, so, yeah, so it's kind of in that vein. And I think it, I think without Black Ice, it probably would, they wouldn't have made this either. There's almost like this, you went to the premiere and, and now like you got... <laughs> the the highs and the lows and the comments and things but it's not over i mean as this goes around the country i'm sure you're gonna keep getting <laughs> the broadsides you know yeah i um i don't know i'm I, like i said i'm back in my hole now so i don't have to think right. about it but um right yeah it's cool i mean it's cool to see on social media that people that it's uh it's still going all over the place it's going to premiere in jordan and the palestinian climbers are some of them are going to be able to go see it there. And um, I'm excited for that. I'm excited to see the different reactions from around the world because I think they'll be all very different. One issue that I thought could be interesting for us to talk about, so this isn't just so like uh, self-referential, is um, this idea of just like kind of Westerners going to places like Palestine and starting climbing programs and being the kind of saviors who who start this. Cause that's kind of this theme in this film that is explored a little bit, but not, I think there's more to say about it. You probably don't get this as much as I do, but I've literally gotten lots of pitches from people who are like, Hey, I've been blah, blah, you know, is Stan and, um, <laughs> and I'm starting a climbing program and here's my charity. And can you plug this and get us press? And this is all. And so I'm, I'm used to this kind of, pitch from folks who who try to do this stuff and i've i've found a lot of them to be very suspicious and um and that was kind of part of the film too is that and maybe a little bit unstated but when when tim actually reached out to me to tell me about this program i was like like honestly dude i don't really trust that your motives are pure like and i said that to him on the phone like and i was like i'm you know, I was like, I'm actually Palestinian and I, so this is an important topic for me. And so I don't like, who the fuck are you basically? Like, why are you, why are you teaching these Palestinians to rock climbing? I didn't, I really didn't get it. And I was suspicious of that. This was, that this was like a dude who's making this all about him. And that couldn't have been further from the truth with Tim. He's one of the most genuine, great people I've ever met. Um, I consider him one of my best friends now, but I think that there are a lot of examples of people I've, I've come across over the years who don't have that purity of motive when, when they go into these places. Um, so I don't know. I was just curious if, if that aspect of the film, you know, if you noticed it or if you have any thoughts about it. I, I was impressed at how well Tim comes across on the, on the video. And, and of course I'm like, well, they can do that, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and, 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 you know, I, I, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's a suspicion. It's not exactly a suspicion, you know, cause that would, that would mean I was like looking for nefarious motives because, because the problem is, is I'm like, well, what, what is the nefarious motive? Like, what do you get out of it? If, I mean, do you know what I mean? Like, 
Is there you a pot status. of gold? Is you there get, riches? Or you, you get, get status, status as like a guy right. who's like done this program that you get to right. go, you know, schmooze at American Alpine Club, you know, black tie events about. And, um, and so I think that there is some of that. <laughs> not with Tim, not with Tim, but just, do. <laughs> well, some people do. I'm just All saying right. that that's in general. I've been invited to a lot of those things. I'm like, oh, I don't know. I got something else going on. I know. I, I haven't even been invited, so you're uh, you're yeah. ahead of me on the total. I've gone to one. It was fun. I'm not I'm not dissing it. It was actually a really good time um in Boston. But nevertheless, yeah, I mean like you know, I, I'm willing to I'm willing to, you know, sort of like split the difference, you know. Like, okay, so Tim uses this or someone like Tim uses this to to launch some sort of career in international affairs or, you know, aid work or whatever. I mean, I, that's fine with me. I'm not, right. I'm not so like naive to think that like he has to just like get nothing out of it for himself. Right. Um, but I mean, in the film he comes across as just, yeah, genuinely enjoying what he does. Um, obviously the people, the climbers there trust him, Mm -hmm. you know? And I think that, you know, we have to give them the benefit of the doubt that they are extremely wary of everything and would be extremely wary of a person like him um, be- just because of the way their lives have unfolded, you know, since they were born. And so it's like to think that someone like him could come in and sort of like pull one over on them and, and make them love him and then just bail, you know, that, well, that's let me, patron- let me call patronizing to... to you know, patronizing to those people. Yeah. Because me, these aren't kids. Like this is a group of adults that, you know, have been through a lot of horrible stuff. I guess let me let me give you um I guess a more specific example of what okay. kind of came to mind for me. I do know of a guy who did something similar and was, you know, developing climbing in kind of this remote place where climbing hadn't existed before and was you know, getting like <laughs> US aid grants to like bolt walls and basically fund like his climbing habit and without like a a real investment with the community or real appreciation mm-hmm. it wasn't like about them it was more about him and so i think that was one of the examples that were kind of coming right. to mind for me it was right. i was just suspicious of the motives behind this you know if they're now he started a, like Tim started a business. He it was a climbing gym in in this country. So I was like, okay, you know, are you just trying to promote your climbing gym so you can as a business owner? But he started that business and he gave it away immediately once it was like up and running to the climbing to the climbers who live there who now own it and run it. Um, and so it was never about him. And but he he's the exception I think for this kind of person who goes and does this kind of thing or at least in my experience that I've come across. And so all to say that's kind of justifies my cynicism and, you know, suspicion about him when I, when he first reached out and got in touch. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I kind of like, I just sort of get this idea of going, going in and throwing some money around and stuff. Like you said, so you can develop some rock that you want to get developed. Mm -hmm. And, and this idea that you go in and, and are developing it for, the locals when you're really just developing it for yourself and you want kind of free reign. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, shit that happened in rifle. 
frankly. <laughs> <laughs> the original rifle bolters made a lot of promises to the city too. Yeah. <laughs> that were mostly complete bullshit. <laughs> so, um, and I think the city regrets it at this point, but, uh, but yeah. What so have we done? I, yeah. What have we done? Exactly. We can't even park in our own park for like six <laughs> months a year. Um, thanks you motherfuckers. <laughs> anyway, and nobody even goes to wing nuts. <laughs> <laughs> That's an insider one there. <laughs> but anyhow, yeah, so I understand. But I, I, I don't know. I, I, I enjoyed having him on screen. And uh, I mean, other than the fact that he, I mean, no offense to him, but, you know, he looks like like straight up like freshman Sigma Chi, yeah. you know, rush week guy. Um, <laughs> good looking guy, uh, no doubt. But uh, but yeah, I, I think I appreciate it. And I, I knew his backstory. What's that? He's single ladies. I knew his backstory uh, to a certain extent, and definitely had a large mark on the on the community. Mm-hmm. Um, and then all that climbing looks great, but it's not like life changing rock that he found. You know, yeah, it's like it's worthy of of a local climbing zone for these Palestinians, but it's not like he snuck up on, you know, that he found Sayus on the West Bank or something like that. So. There's there's a line in the voiceover where I say something like. Um, I'm talking about this crag called Yabrud, and we say it's as, it's a haven for Palestinian climbers. And at one point, mm-hmm. the line was as close to heaven as it gets for Palestinian climbers. And I thought that was, I always thought that was kind of cheesy, and um, mm-hmm. so I wanted it to be as close to Sayus as it gets for Palestinian climbers, <laughs> which is which to say not a, not a close at all. Sayus, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, um, I mean, it's yeah, yeah, so. Yeah, I get I get where you're coming from. So Tafik is like an interesting character as well. Who you know he's like, he's like this like natural kid who has absolutely nothing as you see in the film, and um, is just like naturally gifted. And you could just imagine like if he had been you know grown up in Boulder, Colorado, you know, and had the access to the to all the gyms and stuff, like what kind of climber he would be. And that was just like so immediately apparent to me you know meeting a guy like that is like how how those kinds of like privileges and opportunities and proximity to gym and wealth and all that stuff just really absolutely plays a huge role into what kind of climber you are yeah it's really uh one of those fateful things you know um whether you sort of believe in that literally or metaphorically it's like the fact that that kid saw it did it and and you know Tim was there and, you know, this community was this like nascent community was growing, you know, just all kind of comes together for that kid. And it's, you know, one of the things we joked about uh, another taps reference is, is getting rid of this idea of this like common thing, like climbing is meaningless. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, you mentioned during that, that like, that's kind of what this film was about was like you losing that sort of idea that, Oh, it's just dumb shit that we do to like pass the time. Cause we're, mm-hmm. And yeah, that, that really comes through from the Palestinian climbers, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, they, they address it directly. Like it's not meaningless. Like it's super important. Yeah. It's important on so many levels. It's like, it's important because it is a way to just feel free and to move and on just on that physical level and just relax and, you know, have fun and have, I mean, 
there's there's an interesting um, thing in Palestine where there's this marathon, which is 26.2 miles, and it goes on the same however many roads like four times. You have to do a lap on four on like four laps on this circuit of road in Palestine because there's no stretch of road in Palestine that is longer than 26.2 miles without reaching a point where they can't pass through without like with unfettered access in all of Palestine. And so it's, that is, it's, it's that sense of like not being able to move is like such a pervasive part of their life. And so when they go out to crags, it's like, yeah, you feel that physical sense of freedom. Um, but it's also meaningful just cause it's like a way of connecting literally with the land. Like, and that is such an important part of, of what it means to be Palestinian as well. But what I was going to say is with Tafik is, there's that really awkward scene in um in the movie where I'm <laughs> I'm in his uh house and just trying to yeah, like kind of do this like um show host interview style thing, which I was so uncomfortable with in every I mean, we did other examples of that throughout the film where I would kind of try to interview someone and I fucking hated it. I was like I am not Anthony the next Anthony Bourdain. Um, if that wasn't apparent to everyone already, but we use that one because it it just spoke to the reality of, of really what it's like to be kind of confronted with that kind of, you know, inequality and and disparity in, in life circumstance. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The, 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 the gulf between you guys in terms of at least materialism and material Mm -hmm. wealth was like, it was so huge. You, you kind of couldn't. Like you couldn't quite step across it for a few minutes. I think it, it was real. It was really apparent. But I mean that. But that just I think it kind of then like highlights that once you guys were climbing, you know, like then the connection was still there and it like leapt mm-hmm. over that that gap again. Um, because uh, it's funny because yeah, all those guys are so they're they're like gleeful that like you kind of can't climb for shit. <laughs> it's so awesome. And but but it's not like gleeful like fuck you, you suck American, but more like they're like wow, we're not we're not we're we're in the mix. Like I that's yeah. the feeling I got from it. Is they yeah. felt like they probably feel like they're on this island and they don't have any connection and they're probably suck compared to just any average climber that you meet somewhere else. Um, Mm -hmm. but they're all solid climbers, you know? And I think that was probably more, I I felt it was more like they were, especially with Tafik, he's like, Oh dude, I'm right in the mix with this guy. That's like famous or whatever, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I I think that was really kind of cool. And, and I mean, I've believed it ever since I started traveling the world. It's like, there's this commonality that not only goes across geography, but across time, you know, there's, they're like these, you know, guys like Mallory and stuff, they weren't very much different than climbers are now, you know, these, mm-hmm. these guys like that. And that was so long ago. Um, yeah. So that was like really heartwarming because it, I mean, I guess it, it sort of spoke to a bias I already have, you know, this idea that we're, we have this commonality that can, to, can bridge these gaps. Like you felt standing in, in his little hovel basically. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it helped me sort of like, again, like just reinforce this bias, but it's a positive bias. It's not like a, a negative one. So I'll just yeah. let it be, be reinforced. <laughs> yeah. Well, 
I mean, being out of shape, you know, not really wanting to it to be a film, but kind of getting brought into this world of having it be a film and and you know, not climbing at Seyus, but climbing in at these crags in Palestine. It could have been something that I think went really off the rails and was just a terrible experience, but it was seriously one of the best trips of my life and changed my life in so many ways. And yeah, and I'm just like really proud of how the film came out and I hope people get to go see it. Corey Rich is a director and photographer based in South Lake Tahoe. Over the past two decades, he's documented some of the most iconic moments in rock climbing and shared stories about what it's like to be up on the biggest walls with the best athletes. Check out his book, Stories Behind the Images, Lessons from a Life in Adventure Photography. The last three days, um, Chris McNamara and his, and his wife and two kids have been staying at our house. They're getting ready to leave for Australia, so they rented their house for a month. And so we had my daughter, one of her little girlfriends every day, sleeping over, and the two McNamaras. And Chris and I have been on kind of full-time snow blowing and snow removal duty and whiskey <laughs> drinking and, and coffee drinking. I think that's, and we'd squeeze a little work in between, but it's, Lots of snow blowing, lots of whiskey, and uh, and a lot of child care with a little bit of work. So this is a great break to have an hour allocated <laughs> to uh, thoughtful, deep, um, world-changing <laughs> conversation. Yes. So yeah, the 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 gist, and this is like um, we we're just talking about the the taps episode over at the Enorma Cast of things that are dying in climbing, um, and this was actually on the list, but we never got to it and now we have an actual you know maybe one of the the most successful climbing photographers all of all time perhaps to uh to talk about this and um uh, it's my contention that, that when, climbing... when are they joining uh, <laughs> <laughs> come on Corey, um you're in there you're in the mix um but yeah i mean it's like uh i feel like it's almost dead climbing photography like I don't know. It's kind of, I feel like it's kind of been wrung out and, um, this is kind of co a complicated anecdote, but you know, I, I usually post pictures with, you know, normal cast posts as we do at the run out. And I oftentimes just ask the athlete, Hey, send some photos that I can use. And sometimes they send credits and other times they don't. And when they don't, I just like, you know, assume it's from kind of their catalog and you know, it wasn't that important. So anyway, I post this picture of this athlete and uh that came from from this person and i get this message a few days later just like you know accusing me of you know stealing this thing and posting it without permission and et cetera, et cetera. and this this photographer was rather upset with me you know and said that they had been out in the wilderness and came back and like all their friends had told them i had taken their photo and <laughs> and anyway i was like okay cool i'll pull it no problem sorry you know the athlete gave it to me i assume they had the the, you know, the permission to use it cause it's them in the picture. And, you know, I figured, yeah, since it's them, they can use it as they want. And, you know, he shot back. That's not how it works. And, but then he was like, well, just credit me and it's fine. And I'm like, no, it's gone. I'm like, let's just, you know, take the problem off the table. It's fine. And I also was like, I'll just get another picture. 
And the thing was, is that I did get another picture from a photographer who I'm just more friendly with as well as the athlete is more friendly with. And it was almost literally the exact same picture. <laughs> like if I flashed them quickly to you guys, you would be like, what? That's the same photo. Like the person, you know, it was a classic, like looking down at them climbing and this person was wearing the same clothes practically. And like, it was the same shot. Yeah. And, yeah. and anyway, and I just posted that instead and like, who cares? I moved on. And, and it just made me think like, isn't the value of any of these photos really just the person in it? And I was like, what kind of compensation did this person get? The photo's only valuable because that person has, you know, some level of fame, right? You're, you're selling the picture on the presence of this climber, not necessarily like if it was just some rando, it wouldn't, it wouldn't literally have the same value. And the composition and the shot kind of was irrelevant. Like you could Photoshop in Alex Honnold to the same shot and then it would become even more valuable, you know, kind of a thing. So anyway, and then I, and then the other thing that happened is I saw this picture image photo. I don't know. You, you, the photographers always have this. They want it. They don't like shot or picture, right? They, they want image image. That's the word I'm looking for. Um, image of Honnold on conception there in the desert and by jimmy chin beautiful shot you know the this like shadow coming up behind him but he was still in the light you know like classic and then i saw literally like the same exact photo only of a different climber all you know it was just like yeah at the end of the day the 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 shadow comes up the route so if you if you wait a minute you're going to get this sort of same shot so anyhow, it started making me think of like, has it all been taken? Like Greg Epperson, like where's you know, the value in climbing photography? Yeah. Is yeah and, the, and then also like, it's, it's kind of been done. I mean, like, I think you were very much inspired by the oldest guys, Corey. I mean, the, you know, the, the Glenn Denny's and the, and the Tom Frost of climbing photographer, but then Epperson's in there and like, you look at a modern climbing shot and it's almost like you can be like, yeah, Greg, Greg took that shot essentially like in 1984 or whatever um anyhow those were all my thoughts yeah. and i was like then you throw the iphone into it everybody's got this like you know camera on their phone that's like the best camera ever made anyway those were all my thoughts um yeah that's that's super interesting chris <laughs> it's a, a bunch a bunch of thoughts go through my mind which maybe let me i'll just go in no particular order okay great i know that was like a big spray down of no that was good that was definitely it just triggered some neurons in my head Mm -hmm. that i haven't uh tapped into in a while one huge reality i think that everyone in the creative space is talking about be it photography filmmaking coding storyboarding writing is where is ai gonna fit into (laughs) climbing photography and that one's that's no joke it's sort of this idea that that idea that you're describing that you can kind of, if you can search the web smartly, you can see the picture Jimmy shot, the picture that some photographer that we don't know who they are shot of the same scenario from Greg Epperson shot it, you know, 30 years ago, the same photo. We've just, AI can actually just rebuild that image with Chris in that, Chris Kalous in that photograph because you give it enough information. That's part of our reality. Like we're all trying to wrap our heads around what does that mean? Like, do you even need reality? Do you need to show up and actually make that picture? Or can a computer, can machine learning 
with artificial intelligence do that for you? I, I can't claim to be an expert there. Like I'm trying to wrap my head around what will that mean for us? But I've heard some really crazy stories of what AI has done for folks in the last couple of months. So yeah. some someone pointed out on my feed that AI still can't do hands. Like hmm. they pointed out how like it, hands have always been the impossible thing to like paint yeah. um, well, and AI still can't do it very well. But I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it's young, I'll, I'll t- I'm, and I'm not an AI expert. But I'll tell you, I went to this National Geographic Photography Summit a couple of months ago, two months ago, and it's the who's who of photography and storytelling. And the buzz in the room was AI and what does it mean for this industry? And not just photography, but what does it mean to storytelling? And and this is without exaggeration, I think with the AI tools available today, you could probably if you could if you could prompt the AI tool to say, have a forty five minute conversation between Corey Rich, Andrew Bisharat, Chris Kalouse about is photography dead? it would come up with like a 45 minute manuscript that's pretty damn good. Like it, we would still be talking about whiskey. We would still be talking about, you know, snow days and not, and it's, and then it might actually be able to take that and put it into our own voice, like replicate our voices, you know, to 80% accuracy. And so is AI going to figure out hands? Probably. Like I think <laughs> it's going to figure out the hands problem, but I don't know. That one, I don't have much more to add, except that this okay. is part of our future. AI is here to stay. Um, <clears throat> I don't know. I guess if I like really back up and, and kind of zoom out and think about what you just said, you know, climbing photography, it's, I mean, it's pretty young, right? I mean, there's only a couple of generations. There were the Tom Frost and the, and the Glenn Denny's. And then the first photographer to like be an entrepreneur in the climbing world, maybe Galen Rowell in the sixties, like mid late sixties. Then comes the next generation, the Epperson's, the Brian Bailey's, the, you know, Gordon Wilsey's. They're now like truly running businesses. I mean, they've stood on the shoulders of Rowell. They've learned from Rowell and the industry's grown. They're working, you know, there's a thriving editorial market, climbing, rock and ice, um, you know, various magazines, and the North Face and Patagonia are pumping out catalogs and, you know, emerging are the star athletes, the Lynn Hills, the Alex Lowe's, the Conrad's. The, and then I think comes my generation, which is, you know, Jimmy and I and Tim Kempel and Keith Lazinski. We all kind of emerge after the Eppersons and the Brian Bailey's. And we enter the market and it's, you know, there's it's just as, as ripe as it has ever been. I mean, we there's more outdoor brands you know, the publications, they're, they're seeing all-time high subscription rates and and athletes are now starting to get paid, right? There's that direct correlation between the photographer thrives when the athletes are thriving, you know, the Tommies of the world and the Beths of the world, you know, they're pushing the envelope, but they're also like getting contracts and getting paid to be professional athletes in a way that Lynn Hill and Backer and Croft struggled to get paid. So it was an emerging industry. So I I think we're in like the sweet spot. I enter the world where it's, you know, Dwayne Raleigh is willing to write checks for me to go on climbing trips with, you know, Jeff Jackson. And, I, you know, I can't believe it. We're getting paid to do this. And there's plenty of pages in the magazine because the advertising is endless. Everybody wants to advertise their, you know, new fabric and their new carabiner. And I can't even remember what the other ads are. Every page was like the same ad. It was just for a different brand. 
But then it was it was all about you're right, Chris. It was what's what was the story in the image? Like what was the value of the image? Was it a photograph of Tommy? What was what was the importance of that photograph? What were we trying to communicate? But something kind of magical happened sort of at the in Greg's era, in in the Epperson Bailey era, Thornburg era, and at the beginning of of I'm gonna call it our era, Jimmy, Tim, Keith. One of the things that happens is industry outside of the climbing industry start relying on climbing photography because it's a great metaphor for challenge and perseverance. And that's where the big checks start coming in. So all of a sudden, you know, there's dot-com companies and car companies and various, you know, mainstream Fortune 500 brands that say climbing is a great metaphor for the messaging we're trying to create. And, and the interesting thing about that use of climbing photography is they don't care who's in the photograph. They don't care if it's Honold or Tommy or like they just want images that that look like their storyboard that they can drop their copy into and advertise the new Ford, you know, whatever the name of the vehicle. And I think that piece, that was big, right? That's when I think it went from there, there were there were little bits of that for the Galen Rowell era and the Greg Epperson era. And then I think we really we were in like the sweet spot. You know, the, the guys that are now late 40s, we were in like the real sweet spot of you can make money in the climbing industry, for, in the magazines, you could in the climbing commercial industry for the companies that were selling products. And then the mainstream started embracing climbing photography. And I think what's changed between my era and, and I'm going to be honest, I, I can't rattle off a bunch of names of contemporary climbing photographers. I can't tell you who they are. Uh, I've seen their photos, but they, what they've done is they're paving a new way. There's no more editorial, ma- you know, magazines are dead. I mean, uh, actually, I wanted to ask you guys, is Outside Magazine going away, like the whole company? Is that just hearsay or is that it's, pretty much It's not on? doing well. Um, we okay. talked about that a, a bit on the TAPS episode, Chris. Um, but yeah, the the Outside Magazine is definitely hemorrhaging money, it seems like, yeah. and, and cutting jobs. I mean, it's so, so there's no editorial rock and ice is gone. I mean, cl- a shell of climbing is still alive, but it's probably going to be gone. And it's, it's not just online. It's okay. It's just no more print. And so today that talented photographer, it's the, the baseline is they need to make compelling, beautiful photography. And occasionally it's going to be surprising and something that no one has done before. So it's, a lot of what they're going to do is exactly what you described, Chris. They're going to go and shoot the same picture that Epperson shot 35 years ago with a new athlete and a new outfit with you know slightly different light. And that one flake out to the left fell off the wall. And so it's a little bit different. <laughs> you know, I'd say that way it's a number grade harder because that undercling popped off. But it's... But what they're going to do is they've figured out a new delivery mechanism. That's They're living in this world where all of a sudden they're controlling the narrative. And, and Instagram is a great example. Social media is a great example. The savvy next generation photographer, whether their pictures are better or worse, the person that's savvy and understands how to kind of build an audience and put their pictures out there and make you believe that they're the first to ever shoot this picture, they're winning. Like they, they are, they are like reinventing an industry and, and, you know, I, I'm Chris Burkhard is a great example of this. Chris is a good friend, not exclusively a climbing photographer, 
but you know, the guy has millions of followers on social media and it's, you know, he's as much a talented photographer as, as a super motivated, you know, adventurer and an incredible entrepreneur where he saw the landscape and he said, I'm not going to be relying on magazines. I'm not going to be, I'm going to, I am going to build a platform that is dependent on me where I have an audience and I can sell directly to that audience. And so I guess, you know, big picture, one of my passing thoughts, this is a long way of saying, I think this industry, the climbing photography industry, it's as bright as it has ever been. If you're an emerging photographer today, if you can look at the world through a new new pair of lenses and not look in the rearview mirror and say, I need to do what Galen did or what Greg did or what Jimmy and Corey did. It's I'm doing, I have this new path and I need to figure out what is that path? What's my opportunity in this industry? And I, and, and I see it. I occasionally land on a photographer on social media where I realized, Holy cow, this, this person, this man or woman, I don't know their name. I've maybe never seen their photographs, but they have 3 million followers on social media, on, you know, Instagram. And I know enough about Instagram to tell you that 3 million followers is worth a lot of money. I mean, it's, it's huge. It's that it arguably their account has more value than rock and ice had at the peak of, of its print edition. I mean, it's, you know, they, they might be getting folks to pay for advertising at a similar rate that Dwayne had folks paying for a full page ad and rock and ice. I might be exaggerating there. Dwayne, if you're listening to this podcast, you can correct me. Um, so anyhow, that's a highly unlikely (laughs) (laughs) Dwayne's disappeared into the world of, of, um, antique, uh, light restoring. No kidding. I didn't know. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's weird. But anyhow, (laughs) I want to, um, I want to ask a very kind of, uh, geeky and specific question to you, Corey, that builds on, um, Chris's anecdote. And it's, um, I just have a question around like photographers who get really kind of bent out of shape about seeing their images used online without their permission to what you're saying. It's such a, like, there's no money involved in like getting that tag on, on the Enormacast Instagram page. And, and if that image appears on whatever, like my shitty blog or something like that, like, you know what I mean? Like, it's not, that's not going to make or break their, the bank for that photographer. And so, we just live in this world where this idea of content is kind of ever pervasive and we're 25 years into just churning out as much online content as possible. And photography is just used, you know, everywhere. Like I I had a very similar example where I just wrote a a thing about Eamon McNeely who just died. And I, I just, you know, Googled an image for him and I found one online. I didn't know who took it. He needed some toning work, and so I, I adjusted it. I turned it to black and white and toned it up and put it on my website. And the photographer just reached out to me, and he's like, hey, can you take that down? I didn't give you permission to use that. And I was like, okay, sure. And I, I only mentioned the toning aspect because I saw that probably five or ten other blogs and websites and other places use that exact image that I had toned. And I, I recognized it because of the way, you know, the the shadows and highlights and stuff that I'd worked on. And so, yeah, we just live in this world where it's like the genie's out of the bottle with like, once one of your photographs is on the internet, it's almost like free game. And it's, it seems like a game of whack-a-mole to do this thing where you try to, 
try to squash everyone who uses your image without your permission. And so how do you think about that? Or what advice do you have for kind of up and coming photographers in terms of thinking about their property and, and, um, yeah, those questions. Did did you, Andrew, did you give that photographer, uh, a photo credit? Um, he, no, I mean, it was like a nasty email where he was like, I'm going to sue you if you don't take it down. And I was like, okay. (laughs) And I, I wasn't going to just be like, Hey, I'll just give you a credit. Um, so I I just took it down. Definitely the best advice for you, Andrew and Chris, is you guys should lawyer up. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, I am. Well, I am lawyered up. Yeah, Chris, Chris is a I'm, I'm always lawyered up. I knocked up a lawyer. Uh, that's so good. good. Yeah. Good to go. yeah. yeah. <laughs> Actually, that's how you should respond to each of those requests. Is like CC your wife and, and like, my, I'm going to let my attorney take it from here. <laughs> uh well, so so for me, I mean, gosh, this is a funny story. When I was like 19 or 20 years old, I was introduced to Dick Duane, who was uh, who was Galen Rowell's lawyer, and Dan Duane, prolific Daniel Duane is his, his pen name. He, he he is a prolific writer in the outdoor space and climbing space. And Dan and I were good friends, doing you know, stories all around the world. And I became super close with Dick Duane, his dad who was the attorney behind protecting camp four and just an incredible family and an incredible guy. And so early in my career, there were instances similar to what you guys are describing. However, they were different in that it wasn't a photo of mine that was used on a, you know, blog post. It was a photo of mine used in an airport, you know, at a sunglass hut booth. And I realized, wait, this doesn't, feel fair. And so I, you know, I consulted maybe the legend of like climbing photography law was Galen's attorney, Dick. And so I would, I would, as a young guy, I would, in those rare instances where I would see my photo on a, you know, the side of a building or in a national print ad where I had, there was no communication and it was stolen. And, and we, we literally would lawyer up and Dick Duane would write a letter and that usually resolved the issue. However, you know, those, those uses were worth tens of thousands of dollars. What you guys are describing, and I think we're living in a new era, is inconsequential in my mind. Like, I, not a day passes that someone doesn't forward me a photo that's on someone's blog or, in, or sometimes even on commercial websites. I mean, there's some really hilarious uses of my photos that I just, I just blow off. I mean, my metric always is, you know, is this company, is this a legitimate company that's printing money in the background and leveraging my content to do that unfairly? And if it is, then I'm willing to kind of go that extra mile and at least reach out and and send a, an email similar to what you guys are describing. However, I can honestly say that rarely happens in the climbing world. I will say for me, a, a big piece of it is I just want to have, I just want credit. I just want my name next to it so that if you know, you never know how that photo is a stepping stone to another usage. So hmm. had I shot that photo of Ammon and it's my name is on it and then it's, you know, CNN wants to use the same photo. CNN is actually going to reach out. They'll, they'll Google me and they will reach out to me and say, we would like to license that photograph. So I, I guess it, that's a, all of that is a long way of saying I let the little stuff, you know, roll off pretty easily. I mean, it's, it's just not, I don't, there's not enough time. There's not, I don't expect you or Andrew to pay me to use a picture of a climber on a core podcast, like the Enormo cast or Andrew's blog. 
But if you were the marketing guy at Gatorade and you just grabbed that same photo and, and used it like that, that's where I think it crosses the line. I'm going to yeah. reach out and proactively kind of let you know. Um, and, and at that level, that marketing director understands that, you know, that, look, they have a budget for image acquisition and, and, uh, and ad buys. And so I think they're just different worlds and I, I don't sweat the little stuff. It's in, I mean, this brings it back to AI in a sense, because uh, we've started using AI images just for like, you know, illustrating blogs. I used an AI image for the salmon piece I wrote. Um, and it's, um, I, th I think that, that if we think about dividing like content into two different kinds of buckets, like there's like just the content that you just need for your blog or for something that just illustrates a piece you've written or a podcast that you've put out. There's a, maybe this like new world that we're entering where that could be satisfied by these AIs that to, to generate that kind of stuff without any kind of copyright infringements. And I'm, I've been hopeful that AI is going to allow us to just redirect our attention toward the truly beautiful and truly great work works of creativity, whether that's photography or writing or whatever it is that kind of steps outside that, you know, awful word of content just content you know space filling stuff that gets put online um and i i'm hopeful that um in this new world of of ais that we live in that we will have space in our in our minds and hearts to uh, you know fall in love with like those great photography images or the great pieces of writing that could only come from you know, like human, cre human powered creativity. Well, I, you know, and going back to the use where I got in trouble, um, a little bit of the difference is because I, I'm aware of the crediting and things like that. And, um, but one of the issues that I kind of like fell back on was, um, with that is also compensation again to the, um, the subject of your photo and, and climbing is interesting because it's, it's a it's a place where you know for forty years notoriously does not compensate models as it were, and you know you you kind of built uh, I think part of your career when I talked to you on the Normacast was on these lifestyle photos, you know you built off of Frost's kind of um, history with that and you know and I understand like you're shooting pictures of people around a fire or whatever. Like, yeah, we don't, you don't need to start passing out, you know, Benjamins to those people for the picture. But when you, when you recruit whiskey, somebody to, give them whiskey. to, what's that? You can give a them a glass of, of whiskey. Yeah. yeah that's right. Yeah. I mean, I, but then I started thinking about like when you recruit somebody, you know, to climb for you when you, when they're, you know, it's like you go to the crag and you got to get your rope up and you got to get in the way and, and you know, that also has never really been compensated in the olden times. Maybe you got to keep the shirt they gave you. Um, I actually had a had a kind of contentious moment with Epperson years ago because he wanted all the clothes back after like a, a four week expedition. Um, I was like, really? Like you're gonna do something with this fucking pair of long johns I've been in for like the last sixteen days straight? Anyhow, but that was always like part of it. Maybe oh, you get to keep the shoes or whatever. But in this case, again, when this this athlete gave me the picture to use of of them of her, I'll just say her. I was like, yeah, she she gets to use her image as she sees fit and that and we kind of had this back and forth this this photographer and i was like yeah i think it's fair that she uses it as she sees fit since it's her and she climbed for you and i'm sure you did not give her a dime 
for that. And, but that's when he was like, no, that's not how it works. And I'm like, I know maybe legally it's not how it works, but in my 30 years in the sport that actually has always in when I've gotten pictures taken of me, kind of how it works. Like, yeah, you know, I'm going to use this photo, but you can also like use it. I mean, Burr is classic with that. Like, yeah, go for it. Use it how you will, you know, like don't sell it to Nike or somebody, but you know, and so I was just, that was kind of thing is like, I didn't have permission from this person, but I had it from the athlete in my mind and I would have just credited it had she given me the credit or had he just said, Hey, yeah, can you credit that? But the conversation started with the accusation and that's when I was just like, yeah, there's no way I'm going to keep this photo up. Um, even though they, they want me to now with a credit. So, I, so I, the compensation I mean, thing was kind of an interesting totally, thing. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I've always just had this deep belief in everything that I do should be equitable. And certainly in the photography world, you know, and, and in the beginning, all I had was beer and whiskey to hand out at the campfire because I hadn't made a dime. I'm like, I could barely fill my gas tank, but I was going to keep on shooting photos. And as my career evolved, it's, you know, I, I definitely shared the wealth. Like when I could pay talent fees, I paid talent fees. If I could let the guys keep the long underwear, I'd let them keep the. <laughs> <laughs> and and I think with professional athletes, it's there's still a conversation around equity. It's just a little bit different. Meaning, you know, when you're working with Honold, for example, he doesn't need the hundred bucks from your photo. You know, ten percent of a thousand dollar sale. He's he has endorsements and contracts that are more meaningful than, than that small cut for a photograph that runs in the dying outside magazine or outside online. But I think the key is it's always just, I'm always of that belief. It just needs to feel equitable. It needs to feel like no one's getting burned. And I'm much more, you know, it has always been my philosophy, similar to what you said about Burr, Andrew Burr, 100%, any athlete or whether famous or not famous, they are welcome to use the pictures that I shot of them for any use. And if there happens to be the opportunity for money, great. And I, I use that Nike example or Ford all the time until it's Ford, then definitely bring me into the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, I think that's just the right way to, to do it. I mean, I think there's also similar to climbers, there's photographers with just very different mindsets who, who have a lot, some have a lot more time on their hands and they get worked up about a lot smaller things um or just don't share that kind of you know it's got to be fair mentality um yeah i i i've just always believed if i if i got wrapped up in all of the small things i i would never be out making new pictures or or uh, like actually enjoying my life because i would be writing a lot of those kinds of emails to tell people to take the images off the site and i'm going to build them and coaching them on uh, mm-hmm. you know intellectual property law which that that's just it's not how i like to well, spend my time yeah and i felt i mean i definitely like it was my bad as well i wasn't entirely like well fuck off sure. like, i'll do what i want it was more like how the conversation started versus where it ended up and yeah. and that was when i was just like because i was just like it's just a picture of this person that i needed for this silly post and I it honestly I could have gotten one from her, her mom and it would have done the yeah. same like thing. And that's and and again like the way it started was so aggro that but then that also made me start to wonder like is this like so cutthroat now that these these 
photographers feel under siege in terms of like um you know making money and trying to leverage their images to to uh you know to to yeah on a professional level which is i guess kind of where the conversation in my mind or whatever came from is that like is this just so desperate out there that that this this emailing has to go back and forth because i was like you like this is taking this person time yeah and what compensation is their time like you're just saying like if you got bogged down in that stuff that's a no win for you in terms of how you're using your time i mean i think an honest bit of feedback for me one of the i mean i think one thing that might have helped is if if you had just included that photographer's credit straight out right. of the gate. i think it's always that, oh absolutely that's yeah. big that's i think that's for me it's one of the litmus tests and, and it was a lesson learned like i i, I insist now yeah to and in the past, like I said, if I didn't get a credit, then it was like their friend and who cares? It yeah. wasn't, you know, or whatever. Like, and, and, and the, the athlete too, you know, was like, oh yeah, I totally should have done that. Yeah. Um, and, but anyhow. Uh, yeah. I mean, my thinking is that the credit thing is big. Um, and I, I'm also, there's like a special carve out in my heart for the core climbing industry, which is you guys fit into that world. This is, there aren't many places that you can go to have thoughtful, passionate, inspirational conversation and listening around our climbing world. And it's, that's important. Like, I don't want this to die. And I'm, I'm, I maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think you guys are printing money the way that Ford or Nike is, but, or you're doing a good job masking it. (laughs) (laughs) And so I'm just a realist. You know, does the 50 bucks that the photo on your blog, you know, are on the homepage, is it, you know, the 50 bucks isn't meaningful to me. It's more important that the show goes on. And so that's it. I mean, that's where I sit and I make that judgment call all the time. And I think, you know, if, if, and again, I I don't know who this photographer is, and I'm sure photographers will listen to this and I'll get emails saying, you need to be more hardcore, Corey, about like, you know, calling out every, you're sitting in your ivory tower. Yeah, exactly. I'm piles of money. (laughs) As this is coming out of my mouth, I can already hear some of the critique of me, but um, I get, you know, pick your battles. That's, that's what it really comes down to. Pick your battles. Of course, it's important that you own your content, but it's, you know, you, you only have so many hours in the day. And you're you're probably not going to pay your mortgage with the licensing fee from the Enormo cast, and mm-hmm. uh, and it's and if you're a climber and you love the climbing world, this is this is this is I would look at this as almost a, a charitable contribution to to keep this alive. <laughs> um, We're on the dole here over at the. <laughs> Yeah. There, there was a uh, one of my okay. mentors, this guy Rich Clarkson, a legend of photography. He was the director of photography at Sports Illustrated at one time and then at National Geographic. And he played a huge role in Keith Lazinski's life and my life. And he's just always been a mentor. But Rich always had this great line. He would stand up in front of an auditorium and say, um, you know, I've been in this business for close to 50 years running my own organization. And he's like, I never intended for it to be a nonprofit. <laughs> um, but, you know, anyhow, yeah, I hope that makes sense. It's definitely an old guy lament. And, and, and also the technology changing has always been the classic, like old guy lament. And we're all old enough to, to remember the, the switch from, from uh, slide to digital and how there was resistance and pushback and, 
people will lose their skill with a camera because it it was hard to shoot these things you know with with slide film and see them you know three weeks later or five weeks later after the trip was over and find out what you had and all that sort of stuff but yeah um, yeah 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 I, I, i'm definitely not a guy that you know sort of romanticizes the good old days of film right like how we used to have to like you know understand aperture and shutter speed and you know guess the exposure in our head it's <laughs> sort of like I'll take any device that makes my job easier so that I can focus on trying to make that great picture. It's, it's like all that other shit is a distraction. But the more you're fiddling with film rolls and I mean, it's incredible that we have, you know, this little, I mean, some of the best photos I've shot in, you know, the last five years have actually been shot on this because I had it. It was in my pocket. It's totally adequate. And it, like, right. And, you know, this photos got used online and they drew you know, likes and social media attention. And so I don't know, I'm a believer. It's not about the tool. It's about, you know, what's happening up here and it's, you know, the perseverance and doing it over and over again and just striving for greatness. And that, that I think is the future of climbing photography. There's going to be a few men and women that rise to the top. They're going to figure out the platform. They're going to figure out how to, how to run a business. And they're going to shoot fucking great pictures every once in a while. And a lot of good ones along the way. And, and guess what? Those guys, those people are not going to be worried about the little stuff. They're going to be focused on prize and making pictures that move us. You know, you know what the ultimate climbing, like basically like the climbing photography universe ends when the next photographer shoots a great, photo of scarface anyway. <laughs> it's true like if they can find whatever whatever juice is left in that picture to like squeeze out the the, the greatest picture of scarface ever taken then um, that's it it's they're, over. they're gonna yeah they're, the, the the walls will crumble down and we'll we'll it will step oh, foot into the, the next paradigm of photography yeah you exactly. know, and i'm i'm letting you guys into the inner sanctum of like climbing photography here i'm probably like sworn to not say this but i'm gonna say it. you know it does happen in the inner circle that we send each other emails or you know dms on instagram when one of us shoots a photo that somebody else shot but you honestly do it better than the guy that shot it before you or the woman that shot it before you you know you then send a message to that person you say well done you know you give them that pat on the back which is like that is a better photo of Scarface than I did back in 71. <laughs> and those are the, in my career, those have been some of the biggest compliments, you know, when, when Greg or Jimmy or Tim or Keith or Beth Wall, when, when you get a message from one of those guys saying, or Mikey Schaefer, nicely done, you know, that, that's it. Right. That's like the, you know, I inside the game, like those that really know, when they say you've done a good job on like a cliche photo that they shot first or maybe, you know, and honestly, they probably didn't shoot it first. Someone else shot it. <laughs> I actually <laughs> shot Starface first for yeah, that you block that you stand on. I'm still me. waiting for that <laughs> note from you to say that I've done something better than you original. <laughs> actually, you know, Sav Cummings, she, she got, she put some lights on it a couple of years ago. 
and shot it and changed it up just to skosh. So that was I, I I gave a tip of the hat. Not that she fucking cares whether I tip my hat to the photos, but um, you know we keep talking about like these old photographers, great the great photographers, and and Corey, you've been a few times very careful to put Beth in there, Beth Wald in the conversation, but. What do you see with that? I mean, that's had to have been like all of climbing um, a positive move in the last decade or um, decade and a half towards having a higher amount of diversity, at least as far as genders in in the sport. Because, yeah, we we tend to keep throwing these dudes out. Um, and then Beth was sort of the pinnacle, um, but a lot of, in a lot of ways she was the the one like really successful professional female photographer back then so yeah. what are your thoughts on yeah uh, and like I, the opening it up I'm, and whether I'm, that's brought like different visions to the to the field no it's it's one i mean i'll say it's wonderful to see our industry diversifying in terms of i mean look there, you can't hide that 30 years ago 50 years ago it was a bunch of white guys in america shooting climbing and that and but i think that's changed i mean i i was just thinking about crystal Wright. i don't know if you saw the way oh, yeah. she did on I don't know which crack they were on where they put the lights inside the crack and you know it's super cool photography. Crystal is such a go-getter. Like Crystal is one of the most motivated climbing photographers, adventure photographers that I know, just constantly pushing to do she's a person that is creating great images. And we're living in a world now where it's it is a much more diverse group of photographers photographing climbing and adventure. And because of that we all see the world differently. And I think it's a richer set of images, uh, a deeper level of storytelling. And, you know, and I think it better represents the, the, the climbing base. If you look at climbers in the gym and look at climbers at the crag, we are a diverse group of people more so than we were 20 years ago or 40 years ago. And I think, you know, I, I think this has always been true in journalism. I mean, you need to, you need folks that represent the user group to be making, telling those stories because they see the world in a different way. And it's, there are many amazing photographers out there that are, uh, that are male, female, black, white, Asian. I mean, and I love that. I think that's, that's, it will make our sport better. Yeah. I mean, I, I gotta say Malik Martin in this conversation, because of what you're saying about looking at it differently. And, um, you know, he, he comes from just such the not, background that we all came from kind of you know 30 years ago and and that's i think changed the way his his photographs work in a way that i don't think any any other photographer is doing yeah malik's a great example of that like that's a he he brings an energy and a fresh look to our industry that is that is so welcome and so needed I, i i love it i mean and here's to many more photographers that see the world differently and tap into a part of the climbing culture that that uh, that we haven't historically recognized well i've got a question for you Corey, um to bring it back to this concept of climbing photography being on the death on its deathbed or lack thereof um and it's just this idea of what is the i mean so outside is you know basically dead you know national geographic has lost a lot of its cachet you know climbing doesn't print magazines anymore you know it used to be that your the best images would appear on the cover of climbing magazine and you got to hold or see that cover hold it up and as this is a testament to like i've you know i've nailed it as a climbing photographer what is the equivalent of that today i mean like is it 
Is it just social media following? Is it like, how do you, where do you see as the pinnacle of where climbing photography is? I do think today it's social media, right? It's the, it's the big platforms, whether it's your own platform, you know, whether it's Chris Burkhardt's platform or whether it's, you know, the Nat Geo Instagram platform is enormous. I mean, it's, you know, I'm making this number up. 100 million people look at the main feed yeah. or subscribe to that main feed. I mean, uh, that's, you know, in 2023, I think it is, it's electronic, it's social media. That's, that's like the, the spot. It's the, it's the gallery for photography. And I think what's so, and I think this is that glass half full versus glass half empty perspective. The glass half empty perspective is this is all fucked. Like, you know, you're, no one sees your photography anymore. There's no print. It's a commodity. There's 10 of the same pictures. Everyone's just repeating what the guy did the generation before the woman did the generation before, or there's that glass half full perspective, which is, wow, what, what's coming next? The platform today is Instagram and Facebook. What is in our future? There's going to be some new delivery mechanism, some new platform that that next generation is going to figure out. And there, and there's going to be that one in a hundred photographer that sees the world in a new way. I always like to point to Keith Wazinski and Tim Kemple. You know, theirs is just the most tangible. They entered the world of photography and almost simultaneously, they both started using lights like strobes to shoot climbing. And it looked totally different than what Glenn Denny, Tom Frost, Galen Rowell, Greg Epperson, Brian Bailey, Beth Wald, like they just, change the paradigm. Like they just, they use new tools and creativity to think outside the box. And I, and I guess I don't think climbing photography is dead. I think it's, there's going to be another Keith Wazinski and Tim Kemple that see it in a different way. And they figure out the next, you know, they're just going to figure out TikTok. <laughs> I hope it's not TikTok, but, they, <laughs> but they're going to figure out how, how to deliver the content. That's, I guess, what I'm realizing is that what changed is the photographer used to just be responsible for what's the story and how do I make compelling images to illustrate that story. Today, the photographer is responsible for making those creative images that illustrate the story and they need to figure out the delivery mechanism. And not every photographer is going to figure out the delivery mechanism, but it's, you know, there, there will be in the next 10 years when Instagram, you know, fades away and something else emerges. I don't know what it is, but, you know, that's the bright future. The bright future is there's still going to be big brands, the Fortune 1000 brands that need pictures and they're willing to pay for them. And there's still an audience. If anything, the climbing audience is, I mean, it's larger than it's ever been by a magnitude of like a thousand X. We have a thousand climbing gyms in America. The North Face and Patagonia are recording bigger sales than they've ever reported. You know, that's, that's the golden ticket for photographers. I mean, they, you still need content and it's got to be relevant. You know, I, I, it also, you just need contemporary content. It's that photo that Epperson shot 40 years ago, 30 years ago. It looks like it was shot 40 years ago now. And the photo I shot, you know, 20 years ago looks like it was shot 20 years ago. And the photo that the person shot a week ago looks contemporary. Like they've got the right clothes on, the, you know, the image quality is different. And so I think there's probably more photographers today competing for that same pot of money, but that pot's a lot bigger. I mean, I think it's a huge pot of money right now. 
and I'm, and I'm making it, putting it in real simple terms. Like there is, you know, from a business perspective, if you want to drive your van from crag to crag and put food in your car and buy bottles of whiskey for the campfire, I think there's more opportunity today than there has ever been in the history of climbing photography. You know, building on what Andrew said, and this is maybe, you know, which comes up on this podcast a lot, the old guy perspective, but um, like the dilution sort of issue is, is I think wild in the sense that like, I find it hard in my head and I follow tons of photographers on Instagram. And, you know, this is kind of where all this is coming from is just, you know, cross-referencing all these accounts and how they've kind of all look the same. While, you know, just because there were fewer, I suppose, doing it, you know, there's these like images that are just seared in my brain from people like Frost and then Epperson and then, you know, and it's kind of like less and less that I know who shot it and or it's an image that like keeps referencing in my brain. And I know, Corey, you have these as well from all these photographers. Like that was the day that that Greg yeah. you know, had lightning in a bottle and yeah. it will always, you know, even though the, the clothing is fluorescent and looks silly by modern standards, the, the image was there. And it's kind of wild that like, it's, you know, things are so ethereal in terms of having them in front of your face. Like, you know, this picture's on the Instagram and then you go back tomorrow and you're like, I can't even find it anymore. Yeah. Like I yeah. wanted to look at that picture again and now I can't, I can't find it at all. And it's like mm. under a pile of a thousand more images. So I, I mean, does that like, yeah. do you lament that at all or, or, I, um, I do. You know? I'm reminded Andrew and I talk about this a lot, mm -hmm. you know, just this idea of excellence and, you know, that, that when you say that, what it triggers for me and it's, I felt this way my entire career and mentors like Rich Clarkson said this, you know, look, there, Chris, there's a bunch of good photographers out there, but there's very few great ones. And I think you can say that about photography, period. There's very few great pictures, but there's tons of good pictures. And it's it's really damn hard to make the great pictures. And it's those great pictures, you know, guys, the legends, the Frosts, the Rowells, the Eppersons, they make a few great pictures in their career lots of good pictures that's what it takes to be a pro it's like you you can shoot good all the time but great only happens periodically because everything has to fall into place right it's the, it's the right person it's the right light it's the right moment the right story the right just it all the magic like magic happens and and those the great pictures i think whatever the delivery mechanism your instagram feed you know the I know that's the one, a blog post. Those, those are transformational. Those pictures last in your brain. Like you'll, I, I always joke, I see photos on Instagram, just as you described, it pops up. And before I can like soak it in, the feed refreshes. Yeah. yeah. And, I'm, totally. and I'm like, ah, I, that's it. I, I, I'm not going to, I don't have the time now to go back where most of them aren't good enough. A good picture, I won't go and try to search for it. I, I just throw in the towel and I'm like, well, I saw it for a second. I guess that's it. It's just gone. <laughs> but then occasionally you see a great picture pop up and it, but it's rare, but something so great that then I'll spend five frustrating minutes trying to figure out how the hell, where was that in the feed? Whose picture? Because it was that good. I think that's, that's the magic of photography is that everyone is in the pursuit. Every photographer is trying to make those great pictures and it's, 
damn hard. It's so hard. But I think those still rise to the top, no matter what the delivery mechanism. And it's, you know, those are, those are the images. Sure. Your persona, if Jimmy has 5 million followers and he shoots that good picture, it's going to have more value than the, you know, no name photographer that shoots the same good picture, but the great pictures doesn't matter who shoots it. Those are special. Those, those kind of, you know, pass the test of time because they're, they're so special and they move us. They just, they do something to us as humans when we see them. To celebrate our 100th episode, The Runout is doing our first ever live podcast for Patreons. Our guest will be everyone's favorite climbing icon, Tommy Caldwell. Tommy is one of those guys that climbed the Dawn Wall. Do you remember that? We'll be talking about activism, the environment, and the future of professional climbing, plus a Q&A for rope guns only. Friday, March 24th, 1 p.m. Mountain Time, of course. Rope Guns and Game Changers at patreon.com slash runoutpodcast will receive a link to join us while the rest of you drool. But it's not too late to rush over to patreon.com slash runoutpodcast like Tommy and Alex's two-hour nose record and become a rope gun today. Support the spray and maybe get to ask TC a burning question like, how do you poop on a big wall? So join us March 24th, 1 p.m. Mountain Time for the 100th episode of The Runout featuring Tommy Caldwell. As most of you know by now, the Elcat pirate, Ammon McNeely, lost his life last month in an accident near Moab, Utah. Sadly, Ammon may very well have been the last of his breed of beer-swilling, wall-climbing, cliff-hucking, hysterically joyful iconoclasts. A true loss to the climbing community at large and, of course, his family and friends, particularly the stone monkeys of Yosemite past. Today's final bit features a story and tribute to the pirate by his friend and climbing partner, Hayden O'Shea. Originally from Salt Lake City, Hayden is now a camera rigger who lives in Bend, Oregon. Yeah, I was living in Moab, and my friend Austin introduced me to his dad, Eamon McNeely, the El Cap pirate, and me and him started climbing a lot together. He was teaching me a lot of different things about aid climbing and first ascents and shit I didn't know about, being piratical, drinking a lot of beer, and it was a great time. It was the dead of winter in Moab. I was working this job at a supermarket and I hated it, so eventually I put in my two weeks. And I brought up a possible climbing trip to Ammon, and eventually we settled on going to Yosemite to climb El Cap. And Austin was going to join us, so our team of three drove to Yosemite in mid-February. And we finally got to the valley and got to the base of El Cap. We decided to do the mirror wall, and we were all psyched. I mean, it was my first time climbing a big wall, it was Ammon's first time doing El Cap since losing his leg, so psych was high. But we had no idea how long this was going to take us, and progress was slow. Uh, we spent two weeks at the base fixing pitches, fucking around, partying a little bit, drinking a lot of beer. 
eventually we got established under the wall and it was a crazy experience just learning how to live on the wall and climb these great granite monoliths uh, and learning from the best learning from Aaron McNeely the El Cap pirate he's done this dozens of times and so I just put my faith in him and trusted his vision and trusted our team but I'm not gonna lie it was hard and it took us 13 days to slowly make our way to the last final pitches of the mirror wall and so on our last day uh, I led the first pitch of the day and Ammons led the last two pitches because those were the more technical ones our friend Nikolai had uh, dropped in from the top that day and came in to see us and I was super psyched to have seen another person after 13 days on the wall and he took a couple of pictures of us Ammon finished the pitch and Austin and I met him at the anchor I started playing him for this traverse pitch and Ammon was going out about to clip this fixed piece when the button on his prosthetic pressed against the wall and disconnected from his leg took a 3,000-foot whipper down the face of El Capitan. And Ammon was screaming, fuck, fuck, fuck. And I didn't know exactly what it dropped, so I looked at Austin and I asked what what dropped. He very calmly said, that was his leg. And pretty quickly, things get in motion of how we're going to finish this last pitch and get to the top. So Nikolai ends up throwing a rope down to Ammon and down to Austin and I. Ammon beasts it out there, jugs up with one leg. Slow process, but he makes it up. Austin went up and I was at the belay just packing some gear, uh, getting it ready to go. I sat down there for what felt like hours, but eventually I got up there and we had made it. We made it to the top and finished the route, you know, mission complete. I was overwhelmed by excitement and psych for what we had just done. It was one of the most challenging things I had ever done in my life. But at the same time, there was this worrying factor of how Ammon was going to get down from this. Like the East Ledges, you know, are no joke. So uh, we just weren't sure what we were going to do. He was either going to crab walk or get some crutches. And either way would be super gnarly. So... We camped up there that night, and Nikolai hiked down. He left us with a bottle of wine, so we just got wine drunk, and it was a really great night. But come morning time, we're just trying, still trying to figure it out, and all of a sudden, Nikolai responds that he hiked to the base of El Cap and found Hammond's leg uh, totally intact, which to this day still blows my mind that it was in usable shape after falling 3,000 feet, I mean, I wouldn't have expected that. So Nikolai hikes it back up the east ledges, meets back up with us, Ammon puts it on, and it's a little uncomfortable for him, but it's usable. And we start making the grueling long descent down the east ledges. And we finally made it back to El Cap Meadow uh, on cloud nine. It was an amazing experience just to be back. And two weeks, you know, up there. But, man, I wouldn't trade this experience for the world. And Ammon dropping his leg and and Nikolai finding it was just the icing on the cake for the whole trip. It made for a great story. And it was just a great time to rage with the monkeys. Ooh!
and we felt like kings, but as we got back to Moab, we had realized that COVID-19 had rampaged through the world because this was mid-March now of 2020, so felt like kings, but couldn't really do a ton, so we just sat out in the desert, hanging out, and kept on climbing. And Ammon was the kind of guy who would never let anything get him down, you know, whether it was COVID-19, can't go climbing, or drop your leg off a wall. At the end of the day, he's fucking still psyched and cracking jokes and just, you know, putting the good vibes out there. And with the loss of Ammon recently, it's been a huge hit to his family and his friends the climbing community, the community of Moab, and pretty much anybody who ever simply crossed his path. He left a mark on a lot of people, and a lot of people are going to miss him. But I think keeping his memory alive for myself will be simple. Go out there, live life, and send hard. Rage in peace, homie. just finished another episode of the runout podcast i'm andrew bisherat and you can reach me at andrew at runoutpodcast.com and i'm chris Calouse, and you can reach me at andrew at runoutpodcast.com <laughs> dude come on <laughs> because chris at runoutpodcast.com is where emails go to die that's true we also have a patreon that you can support our show at and it's runoutpodcast.patreon.runoutpodcast.com no no, 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 no patreon.com slash runout podcast yes <laughs> if you dream of sending 514 every month for the rest of your life <laughs> you should go and sign up at patreon slash runout podcast.com <laughs> no dot, dot com slash runout podcast something like that give us some money